Scripture stands clearly opposed to abortion. And because of that, so have God's people throughout history. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his four-part series titled The Biblical View of Abortion. The Bible teaches that human life begins at conception. The Bible also teaches that babies in the womb are persons. These twin truths are two biblical arguments that need to be championed by all Christians because God cares about every person whom He's created in His image. As Christians, we must do the same. Not only is this the overwhelming teaching of Scripture, but Christians throughout the centuries have always believed this vital truth. Scripture stands opposed to abortion, as should all of us as Christians. Friend, is that the conviction of your own heart? Consider the question carefully as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Fifth argument, Scripture consistently treats the unborn as persons regardless of their stage of development. It treats the unborn as persons regardless of their stage of development. Again, let me unfold this in a couple of ways. First of all, God forms individuals as persons in the womb. Job 31.15, did not he who made me in the womb make him and the same one fashion us in the womb? Of course, the classic text on this is Psalm 139. Turn there with me for a moment. Psalm 139, David waxes eloquent describing exactly what happens in God's creative purpose. Look at verse 13, Psalm 139, 13. As he prays to God, for you, God, formed my inward parts. You'll notice literally inward parts is kidneys in Hebrew. My, my organs, you, you put me together. Verse 13 goes on to say, you wove me in my mother's womb. As Fowler writes, the idea of weaving suggests the process whereby the basic frame of man is covered by series after series of sinews, muscles, blood vessels, and tissues. Also notice in verse 13, God formed and God weaved. Yes, there is a reproductive process, but God is at work in that process of development. Verse 14, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That is, by you, wonderful are your works, God, in my own development in the womb, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. Literally, my bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. That's just a figure of speech for the the darkness of the, the mother's womb. Each life is a wonderful gift of the Creator, skillfully produced in the womb by God Himself through the processes He's put in place. Look at verse 16. Your eyes, O God, have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The Hebrew word for unformed substance 
is a word that refers to the first stage of human development after conception, what we typically call the embryo. When David was an embryo in his mother's womb, God saw more than tissue. He saw David, a person whose days were determined already. Another, Another way we can see this argument unfold is that Scripture uses the same terms for children before and after birth. Let me give you a couple of them. Gaber is a Hebrew word that usually means man, male, or husband. Job 3.3 uses it for a child at conception, at conception. Another Hebrew word, yeled, means a child or a boy. Moses uses that word to speak of a child born prematurely in Exodus 21-22. You come to the Greek New Testament, brephos is a Greek word used of infants and the newly born. But in Luke 1, 41 and 44, Luke, the physician, uses it of John the Baptist in the womb. No difference between before and after birth. God relates to those in the womb as persons. In Psalm 22, 9 and 10, you brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. But it's even clearer than that in Jeremiah 1, verse 5. Listen to what God says to Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This, this was a, a person in the mind of God before there was even conception. And before you were born, while you were still in the womb, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. When God looked in the womb of Jeremiah's mother, he didn't see a piece of tissue that had no personhood. He saw Jeremiah. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, of course, we have the announcement to Mary about our Lord. Gabriel said to her, the Lord... Uh, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now, you tell me, was there ever a time between Jesus' conception and His birth when He was not a person? Of course not. John Stott writes, "The the fetus is not a growth in the mother's body, which can be removed as readily as her tonsils or appendix. Not even a potential human being but a human life, end quote. Look at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 41. You remember Mary visits Elizabeth when she learns that she, Mary's going to have a child, Jesus, and Elizabeth's already pregnant. Verse 41 says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb Look at verse 44, for behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Scripture here attributes both cognition and emotion to John before his birth. But look at verse 43. Here you have Elizabeth referring to the five to seven-day-old embryo. You remember Mary heard she was going to be pregnant. She immediately got up and in a rush went to visit her relative Elizabeth. 
And when she walks in the door, Elizabeth calls the five to seven day embryo, the time it would have taken for Mary to arrive there, my Lord. Galatians 1.15, Paul says, God set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. Same concept in Jeremiah with Paul. One other part of this is that under Old Testament law, negligently, don't miss that word, negligently injuring an unborn child was a crime. Look back at Exodus 21. Now, this is a very complicated text, I admit to you, and I don't have time to fully take it apart. I just want to show you quickly what's here. Let me read it, and then we'll make a couple of comments. Exodus 21, 22, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child. Now, first of all, what is very clear in this text is that you have two men fighting, and a pregnant woman nearby is accidentally hit. Now, let's see what unfolds. So that she has a miscarriage. Now, right away, if you have the NAS 95, you see a note in the margin, and it says, literally, the Hebrew says, her children come out. Yet there is no further injury. He shall, be sure, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so forth. Now, some have interpreted what results here to be a miscarriage or a stillbirth. That's how the NAS 95 has translated it. Because the Septuagint translates the Hebrew here as, quote, her infant departs not fully formed. Now, that's led some to claim that a not fully formed child is not a person and only merits a fine if it's killed. But the Septuagint is a bad translation of the Hebrew. You look up the Hebrew word that's used here in all of the Hebrew lexicons, and you will see that the word doesn't mean formed, it means injured or harmed. And the writer doesn't use the Hebrew word for miscarriage in this text, but rather a verb that's used often of birth, the children coming out. That's often used of normal birth. So, with that background, what's happening here in verses 22 to 25 are two possibilities. In verse 22, the first possibility is the mother who's hit by this inadvertently in this fight, the mother gives birth to the child or children prematurely. Literally, her children come out. But mother and child are not injured. By the way, let me say that this translation of the mother gives birth to the child prematurely, that's how it's translated in the ESV. That's how it's translated in the Legacy Standard Bible. That's now how it's translated in the NAS as of the 2020 rendition because that's what the text says. So, the mother gives birth to the child prematurely, But the mother and child, neither of them are injured. All that happens is a premature normal birth. In this case, the woman's husband determines a financial penalty for all the pain and trauma of this event. The judges weigh the justness of that financial penalty and award the appropriate damages to the woman and the husband. That's one possibility. The second possibility is in verses 23 to 25, and that is the mother gives birth to the child or children, but the mother and or the child is injured. 
In that case, the judges are to punish the guilty person in keeping with the injury. So this passage then makes two important points about the fetus. Listen carefully. Point number one is that legally it was to be treated equal to the mother. And secondly, harming it accidentally, even causing a premature normal birth, was a crime. Don't miss that fact. That's very clear. And if the child died, the one who caused it was guilty in Old Testament law terms of manslaughter because it was an accident. But if the fetus were to be injured, or let's say the fetus were to be intentionally killed, as is often true in abortion, then it becomes murder, and life for life is what the the Old Testament demanded. So, here is a summary of all of the biblical data that we've considered. This is what Frame writes, quote, There is nothing in Scripture that even remotely suggests that the unborn child is anything less than a human person from the moment of conception, end quote. That's what we've seen. But here's an important question. Is that what people who've taken the Bible seriously historically seen? That's That's a valid question, right? Are we just making this up because we're against abortion? Or is this what the church and even people, Jewish people, have seen in the Scripture? That's an important question. Let's look at it briefly, the historical interpretation of Scripture. What have others seen the Scripture to teach on this issue? By the way, if you want to understand how people thought about abortion in the ancient world, read Michael Gorman's book, Abortion and the Early Church. But let me just start with the Jewish sources. What what did the Jewish people in the ancient world believe about abortion? Jewish literature is filled with arguments about when a therapeutic abortion, that is an abortion to save the mother, is moral and legal based on the development of the fetus. But listen carefully, abortion on demand was absolutely not accepted. Let me give you a couple of examples. I cut several others from my notes because I don't have time, but let me give you a couple. Sentences of pseudo-facilities says this, from around the time of Christ, a woman should not destroy the unborn in her belly, nor after its birth throw it before the dogs and vultures as a prey. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, wrote, quote, the law orders all the offspring to be brought up and forbids women either to cause abortion or to make away with the fetus, end quote. That's the Jewish perspective. But what about the early church, the early church fathers? The early church taught that Scripture forbids abortion. The Didache, written at the end of the first century, says, you shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill one who has been born. The letter of Barnabas, written about 130 A.D., you shall not abort a child, nor again shall you destroy him after he is born. Tertullian, the early church father, in our case, murder is once for all forbidden. Therefore, we may not destroy even the fetus in the womb. To hinder a birth is merely a speedier way to kill a human. It does not matter whether you take away a life that has been born or destroy one that has not yet, that is not yet born. Basil of Caesarea, 
born about 330 A.D., A woman who intentionally destroys a fetus is guilty of murder, and we do not even talk about the fine distinction as to its being completely formed or unformed, end quote. And these are just a sampling of many that I could multiply. Let's fast forward to the Reformation, the the men on whose shoulders we stand with the truths we believe from the Scripture. What did they teach? Luther wrote, How great, therefore, the wickedness of human nature is! How many girls there are who kill and expel tender fetuses, although procreation is the work of God. John Calvin didn't mince any words when he says, The fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being, and it is a monstrous crime to rob it of life." End quote. Folks, Scripture stands clearly opposed to abortion, and because of that, so have God's people throughout history. Now, let me just briefly comment on the hard cases, because these are the ones that are brought up, and they are hard cases. They're difficult things, but let's talk about them. What about when there's been a rape or incest? Obviously, both of those are horrific crimes against a woman. Fortunately, for a variety of reasons, conception does not happen frequently in these cases. But if it does, I would encourage every Christian woman to remember that that child is a separate human life and is completely innocent of any crime. Better to carry the child and give it up for adoption than to end its life. What about when the life of the mother is at stake? Again, fortunately, this is extremely rare. Former Surgeon General Everett Koop says that during 35 years of practicing medicine, quote, never once did a case come across my practice where abortion was necessary to save a mother's life, end quote. But it happens. And when it happens, the first goal is to try to save both. But again, in a fallen world, at times that's impossible. It then becomes an issue of conscience as to which to save first, considering issues like survivability. The most common threat to a mother's life is an ectopic pregnancy or tubal pregnancy when the embryo has attached somewhere other than the uterus. In that case, the child will not, cannot survive, and left alone will also kill the mother. Personally, I believe that this is a case where the mother can act in self-defense, which the Scripture allows. But it's an issue of conscience that every woman and her doctor and husband need to work out together. That brings us then to the last brief point I want to make, and that is the practical implications. How should we respond? I'm just going to give you these points. I'm not going to walk through them in detail, but just something for you to think about. I'll include some verses that will be on the notes that you can work through. But here are some practical implications. Number one, remember the enemy is the devil not the women who have abortions, nor even the providers. Remember Paul said in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against human beings. It's against Satan who has prompted all of this. Don't ever lose sight in taking these issues seriously of this reality. Titus 2, or excuse me, Titus 3, verses 2 and 3, say that we are to show every consideration to all men because we ourselves were one time foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts, and so forth. Number two, be salt and light, loving your neighbor, speaking the truth on this issue, 
practically helping those considering abortion, and that'll look different for different ones of us in this room, help them and sharing the gospel of God's grace in Christ. That's the ultimate solution. But at the same time, help. Let me just say, by the way, if you're here this morning and, and you're a woman who is pregnant and you're trying to, just, trying to work this through and you're weighed down by the weight of raising that child and the expense and everything else involved, please come see one of the elders. We want to help you. And that's how each one of us should feel about the people we know in our lives. Number three, guard your own heart against accepting the counsel of the wicked on this subject. And the way you do that is by delighting in and meditating on God's Word. Listen, you are not beyond being influenced on the issue of abortion in some way because you are being preached at every day from every conceivable source. And the only way you're going to keep from being influenced is Psalm 1 verse 2. You have to manage your heart. The righteous man delights in God's law and by managing your time, and he meditates in it day and night. Let me just say it bluntly. This is a math problem. I know you hate math, but it's a math problem. If you spend most of your time imbibing the advice of the wicked from music to, to entertainment to websites, to social media, and you're embracing the advice of the wicked constantly, and you spend that much time in God's Word, a thimbleful in God's Word, then understand this, you will be influenced by the advice of the wicked. It's just a math problem. It's going to happen. Instead, meditate in God's Word day and night. Number four, vote for candidates who are opposed to abortion. Don't ever forget that almost a million babies are killed in our country every year. It is a silent holocaust. Think about this. In five years, if that trend continues in our country, in five years, to equal the number of children killed, you would have to kill every single man, woman, and child in the DFW Metroplex to equal that. So vote. Let me add a couple more. Pray for our nation and its leaders. Pray for wisdom, pray for justice, pray for their salvation, as 1 Timothy 2 says. And then, again, let me finish where I started. If, you, if you've been involved in abortion, or frankly, if you haven't, any other sin, what you need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, and you can have total forgiveness. Those sins will be removed from you as far as the east is from the west, the psalmist says, and you'll never stand before God in judgment for them again. Why? Because Jesus will have suffered for them on the cross in your place. That's my prayer for you. And if you've already trusted in Christ, trust in the forgiveness that he purchased. Don't live under the guilt of past sins, knowing that Jesus paid it all at the cross. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes his current series titled The Biblical View of Abortion. Join us next time for a new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, what are a few practical takeaways for Christians as we look to stand firm on the Word of God against abortion? You know, let me just reemphasize what we've discovered, that we need 
to understand we must act. There are biblical ways to get involved. First of all, we just have to remember that the devil is the enemy, not the woman who has had an abortion, nor even the abortion providers. The enemy is the devil. They are enslaved to his will as we once were. Secondly, we have to be salt and light. We have to speak the truth of God's word on this issue, obviously in love. And third, we have to guard our minds and hearts constantly from being deceived and misled on this issue. We can't let the world, we can't let the culture determine how we think. And fourthly, we need to vote for candidates who are opposed to abortion. And finally, we must pray. We need to pray for the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring people to salvation, which is ultimately how people's hearts will be changed on this issue. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.